my 15-year-old son said, Dad, you're brilliant, just not the way that most people think. You're brilliant in the way that you can put together words and make people feel something with your words. Yes. You see, but it, it took me experimenting. It took me stepping outside of the box of what was to find out what could be. We never know. We never know from inside the box what's out there until we step out. Welcome to The Safe Haven. I'm your host, Amanda Lytle. The Safe Haven offers a collection of conversations about life's challenges and the pivots we make in order to keep moving forward. As I evolve and expand as a person and as a podcast host, I have learned that creating a safe space is nearly impossible. I don't know what topics or stories may trigger my listeners, but I hold space with love and intention and honor the bravery that it takes not only to share, but to listen to the stories of others. So I thank you so much for being here. I would like to begin this podcast by acknowledging that I am recording from the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the interior Salish people, in particular, the Sinaiaxt, on whose territory I work and live. I first heard about Rainier Wild on Mark Grove's podcast last year. It wasn't just his incredibly smooth and enjoyable voice that sparked my interest, it was his messaging, his self-awareness, and his openness to digging deep and seeking truth. Rainier Wild is a teacher and a writer who, as his son would say, is gifted with how he's got this ability to make people truly feel. He has been a successful entrepreneur, a psychotherapist, a professor of psychology, and spiritual director. His own experiences have contributed to his deep compassion for others, for the world, and for himself. He is committed to writing about living life to the fullest and teaching others how to access and acknowledge their deepest truths. In this fantastic conversation, Rainier tells us about his decision to walk away from a community that he had built to chase adventure with intention and start playing a more active role in his life. He touches on the art of reinvention and how it was literally blowing up his life that helped him step into the truest thresholds of change. There is so much more to this conversation than that, and it goes in a few different directions, but I cannot wait for you to hear it. As always, we begin the conversation after I've asked Rainier about one of his biggest life pivots. One that I don't talk about a lot, because in all honesty, I've had so many pivots, so many reinventions. Um, in fact, someone once asked, what did you get fired from? You know, they asked that question, which is a strange lead-in for a total stranger. And I laughed and I said, fired, which time, which career, <laughs> what are you talking about? You know, how many do I have to list here? Um, I have pivoted and reinvented so many times, but one that I haven't talked about a lot was when I left a decade old intentional community that I had founded, that I had uh, built and and been such a vital part of, it had largely been the friends I had gathered in high school and college. We had kind of dedicated ourselves to a, an entire practice of work, uh, working together, living together, and prayer in the sense that I think there was a deep sense of mysticism to us. Mm. We wanted to know what the more was that was going on behind, you know, because I think sometimes we can acknowledge that life is what we can taste and see and touch and hold and handle. But 
it is also the more besides. There's something more going on than meets the eye. And we were profoundly scientific about it. We wanted to experiment with it and see what the more was. And so we were this beautiful collective of, I think, modern day mystics, but also very pragmatic and shared life together for over a decade. During that time, I really came of age. I married during that time. I ended up having two children during that time and had a developing career. Then there came a moment when I knew I had to step away. In fact, recently I was looking at an old journal and the journal I think was from maybe my 28th birthday. And I said something like this. I said, I want to have an adventure. I want to be like a character in someone's novel. And then quoting Mary Oliver, I don't simply want to have shown up hmm. and passed through this life. You know, there was a real sense in me that I, I didn't want to simply have been a bystander to living. Of course I wasn't. I look back on some of the things during my early 20s I had traveled the world to find spiritual teaching and mastery but but th there was a sense that there was more and I had to find it. I had to pursue it. And so I I took a, a number of steps to royally uh, blow up my life. It was a really beautiful moment of letting all the plates kind of fall out of the air. I ended up going through a divorce. I ended up losing a career. I ended up uh, unintentionally imploding the community that I had been a part of um, and, uh, and walked away, walked away from a burning building um, towards something new. I can't say that I look back without regret. You know, that's one of the, the real mistakes of life. I think sometimes we, we emphasize don't have regrets. And I think that's really part of what it means to be a human. It means to feel conflicted about things. It, it means to not be black and white. It means to not be either or. It means to say, oh, I'm so glad I did what I did. And I'm so sorry that it hurt in the way that it did to those that it did. And so I, I think that's a beautiful moment. You know, I, I ended up going on and, and studying psychological theory, and part of my dissertation was on human developmental stages. And one of the things that was most interesting in the research that I did was to discover that the vast majority of people, by the time they get into their 60s and 70s, who look back at the sequential stages, the thresholds of change, identify that the stage between 28 and 32, give or take a couple of years in that, but epicentered around 28 to 32, really is the most laden with change. And of course, that's when we're transitioning and, and beginning in, to, to step out of the young adult stage where we're really just living off our parents' dream. We're just burning mm -hmm. off their dreams, their thoughts, their expectations, and stepping into our own. And that was true for me. That was a real pivot. From then on, you know, it became like one of those things where everything that happened was from then on. Mm. And I became a character in someone else's novel. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I lived a life. Wow. Okay. Something that you've said 
actually, and you said it a couple of times about what is the more, you know, seeking of the more. I wanted to come back to that because then I have a question about the burning off of other people's expectations, essentially paraphrasing what you've said, you know, to step into your own or that pivotal time. So I'm really curious about that. But backing up to the what is more, what were some of those super pivotal experiences even within the experience of traveling, of blowing up your life, like you've said? What were some ones that you just still really carry with you? Yeah. Well, first of all, I look back on that that time and I think that what we did was an incredibly radical thing. You know, you'll find spontaneous communities exist everywhere. You know, a, a church potluck, a fantasy football league, a, a couple of neighbors who you have over to play Settlers of Catan. And, and there's this beautiful moment that seems to happen at some point for a lot of people, which is where you kind of look at each other and you go, oh my God, we're like family. Mm. <laughs> this feels so good. But of course, that is very short-lived. We don't really know how to inhabit or hold on to those spaces. So one thing that was very, very unique about that particular experience is that it lasted in one form or the other for over a decade. And I think that's fantastic. Um, We gave each other the chance to slowly unravel uh, or unfold an idea, the idea that is truly countercultural, that we can belong to one another, that we can actually be our brother's keeper, that we can actually begin to engage life and life is better done together than isolated. And I, I, I'm so impressed. I, I, I watch social media. I, I listen to a lot of these stories, these dispatches from the frontiers of these newly forming communities. And I think it's, it's really beautiful and it's really great. It's also not fantasy. It is very gritty. It Mm -hmm. comes down to decisions, hard decisions. Who's going to take out the trash this week? Who's going to uh, pay uh, the electric bill? Oh, I didn't like it that so-and-so ignored me. Um, What do you mean when you said, well, you get the idea. The, The gritty conversations of community are much like a marriage or much like a long-term partnership. The wedding is great. (laughs) but the marriage that follows is where the rubber meets the road. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's hell Mm -hmm. and it's in hell that we find who we really are. So I think we gave each other the gift of time. We gave each other the gift of commitment. I'm not sure that today we would be able to do that in the same way. This was before the iPhone. This was mm-hmm. before the impact of Google in our lives. Google actually came to to exist um, shortly after we formed. And I think that in reality, we depended on each other in such a way that is different than what I hear. Even new communities depend on one another today. There's so much that's proprietary. It's like be part of my community and and pay $100 a month. And I think that's great. Um, but we weren't trying to make money off each other. Mm-hmm. We weren't trying to really be anything. There wasn't a leader. There wasn't an agenda. It was how can we be family to one another? Mm-hmm. So I think that was the real gift at that time. Yeah, it sounds incredibly foundational, I think, for the next phase that you were stepping into. Yeah. So so then coming back, actually, something that I had just written down was actively participating in one's life, right? So this is something that even for myself, when you're saying, you know, you don't want to be someone who's just a bystander in their own life. And I think there's so many of us that based on our life experiences or what we have thrown at us, it might be easier to be the bystander, but how much courage it takes to really step in as an active participant in your life. 
So then back to the idea of, you know, 28 to 32 years old, you know, as you've studied this and now, you know, have experienced this, what were some roles that took you courage to step into moving forward into that new chapter after you're releasing or having, like you said, royally blown up parts of your life? What were some next steps that you took there? Yeah, that's a really great question. You know, some of them were so specific to me at the time. You know, I was raised in an environment that I would probably look back and call anti-intellectual. Mm. Um, my family of origin, while supportive of education, was also suspicious of it. They were not too sure of the influence or the impacts of the world at large. I was raised in a very conservative environment. And that was one of the realities. Then I myself, in the intentional community that I helped create, also had a decidedly anti-intellectual bent. Hmm. There was sort of a, uh, as today, I think, uh, a bias against the mind. We favored the exploration of the heart or even embodiment practices. But we didn't want to come near the mind. In fact, I remember one common saying that we would kind of reiterate to one another, the mind is a minefield. Uh, and, and we didn't want to go too near it. We didn't want to be too intellectual. We, want, we didn't want to be too mindy about things. And so that was a center that was decidedly undervalued and underdeveloped in my life by the time I was 28. I did not have, well, I think I was probably 27. I did not have a degree. I had, you know, gobbled up almost any book I could find, I often chuckle and say, I think I had a PhD in, uh, in deconstruction philosophy from the 1970s French uh, movements, but you know that wouldn't translate into a piece of paper. But I had read all the books. Um, it, there came a moment where I wanted to go back to school. I wanted to actually prove to myself and probably to a lot of others that there was there was a mind under here and it was mm -hmm. a good one. I think as a boy, I had really struggled with the idea, was I intelligent? That was a, a unique thing. I, and I've always thought about this. You know, I struggled at school. I was not a typical thinker. Part of my great gift in life is dialectical thinking. Mm -hmm. So I, I think consciously or unconsciously, I'm always asking what's being left out. Well, if you're a teacher who's trying to teach a perspective and there's a kid in the class who's asking the disruptive and unruly question, what's being left out, you're not really prized in the class. And mm -hmm. so I felt very much to be the school rebel often. And part of how that played out was kind of a permission not to show up or achieve in school. I was very surprised my ninth grade year when I received a, a letter in the mail that asked me from my high school to participate in something called Maximizing Potential English. And to be honest, the sound of it made it sound like it was um, like a special ed Mm -hmm. course. And of course, this really impacted me. And I thought to myself, oh God. And I told my mom, I said, I, I absolutely do not want to be in a course like that mm -hmm. because it just reiterated all these stories. Well, come to find out it was like this high flying, high achieving mm. creators course that literally we got to sit around and do nothing but create plays and short stories and manuscripts. And it was literally for highly gifted individuals, but I didn't see myself that mm. way. So one of the important pivots for me was to break free 
from this expectation of I wasn't actually available to think well or, or to have uh, larger sweeping thoughts. So that was an important self-discovery. I would say, by the way, that for anyone listening, this is one of the things that you can apply to your life. We all have roles that we suffer under that have been reiterated in our life and reinforced in many, many different ways. And at some point in time, we have to break free of them. I'm not the achiever. I'm not the intellectual. I'm not a caretaker or I am a caretaker. Whatever those things are, you know, you get the idea. But at some point in time in our life, those skills that we have developed over time, they make us landlocked. And if we don't break free of them, we'll actually always be profoundly limited. So that was one of the things that I really had to do. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Everything that you just said in the last minute and a half, just as me vibrating to the core, because this is a lot of the work that I'm doing right now is that it's, I've always been one for the self-discovery, but I think when you'd said, you know, the roles that we suffer under and, you know, the ones that we take on that are not ours, they've been placed on us. They're other people's expectations or fear-based projections that they've now put on us so that we can either, you know, from a place of love, do better than they did or whatever. We assume those are the way to do it, the ways to be successful. But unfortunately, the suffering that exists within is so detrimental. So that pivotal time, even in my in my own life, my gosh, does that resonate with yeah, adopting other people's perspectives and opinions and somehow weaving them into what, especially having been, I was a little girl, always trying to please and be the good girl and be, act like a lady and, you know, be kind, be nice, do this, be quiet, la la la. When you carry that into your life, you're a hundred percent living for other people. It's like, where's the wild woman within me? Let her fucking roar. So that is the work that I'm doing now. I love that. And, you know, you said, where is the wild woman within me? And I think that is one thing that is so important in the discovery process because we don't really know what's there yet. Mm. We can suspect what's there. We can kind of hint around at it. For instance, I suspected that there was someone who was really brilliant underneath all of that kind of anti-intellectualism. And so I really thought, oh, maybe I am an intellectual. I'm an academic. You know what is so funny? I tried that on. I'm not an academic. Mm -hmm. I'm actually not an intellectual. I'm not Mm anti-intellectual. That's just actually not how I work. My 15-year-old son said, Dad, you're brilliant, just not the way that most people think. You're brilliant in the way that you can put together words and make people feel something with your words. Yes. You see, but it, it took me experimenting. It took me stepping outside of the box of what was to find out what could be. We never know. We never know from inside the box what's out there until we step out. Mm-hmm. And then we're just going to be really, really surprised. I think of a friend who was in a long-term monogamous marriage for many, many years. And uh, he was always telling me, he's like, oh, I'm so polyamorous at heart. This marriage is just really keeping me restrained. Oh, I'm polyamorous to the core. You know what? And, and indeed, had affairs. It was, you know, he was non-ethically, or, yeah, non-ethically monogamous and did all of these different things. Because he really believed he was polyamorous and and not monogamous. And then, of course, you know, he'd feel incredibly conflicted about this. And finally, he just said, I'm leaving the marriage. I'm leaving the marriage to become what I want to be. You know what? Today, he's not polyamorous. Mm. He's involved in a beautiful, fulfilling, monogamous relationship. Mm -hmm. The truth is, he didn't really know what he was. Mm -hmm. 
He just knew what he wasn't. And that's about like most of us in these boxes. Mm -hmm. We get the sense that mm, it's not all right. Mm. We know what we're not. We just don't know what we are yet. We've got to give ourselves permission to step outside the box. Then we discover what we are. Mm -hmm. The way that your son was able to articulate how, how he views you as being brilliant, I think is so beautiful. And what a beautiful mirror to have you know, to reflect back to you everything that you are. But I heard the most beautiful thing the other day about how some people can be both mirrors and windows. They can also show you what you can be. Mm, yeah, that's really beautiful. <laughs> you know, in the moment, I, I actually, when my son said that, I went, what do you mean I'm not brilliant? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But my oh. gosh, what a message to receive, especially from someone, I guess, too, like you've said, your son, like you clearly have such active roles in each other's lives. And even within that, you know, as much as there is not necessarily an intended expectation, there's kind of an expectation, I think, on both of you at some point to to remain connected and respectful and communicative and all of these things. But I think that for you, what a journey to just witness his own growth and even the evolution to be able to say, dad, this is how I see you. How beautiful. Yeah, that it's a beautiful and a terrifying thing when your children are old enough to begin to reflect on who you are in their life, right? Mm. Because for so long, you know, you're just dad and aren't all dads that way mm-hmm. and aren't all families this way and and isn't this what all sons do or all daughters do and and of course it's just normal, mm. right? And then there comes that day when maybe you step outside and you go, "Oh, huh. No, my my dad isn't like other dads or, oh, oh, we don't have a family structure that's like that. This is really interesting for good or ill. And I think parents are a little unnerved by it. Mm-hmm. You know, my my parents have been incredibly alarmed across the years um, that I write a lot about memories and stories and tell stories. So much so that my my father at one point Stop following me on Instagram. It was just too painful mm. to read these reflections about who he was uh, and what he was about. My mother recently sent me a chapter in a memoir that she's writing. She's racing breakneck speed to get it done before my second book comes out, which is also a memoir. She wants to make sure she tells the story Mm -hmm. as it really happened. Mm -hmm. She doesn't want this to be. And so I think that's one of the traps sometimes that we parents fall into is that we think we have ownership of reality, Mm. of what the truth is. And 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 then perhaps even children fall into that. Oh no, no, no. I I was I remember you know Mm -hmm. well the truth is it's all very subjective. We both had our experience. Mm-hmm. You had yours. I had mine. The gift we can give each other is we can actually say with a great degree of curiosity, what was your experience? Mm-hmm. What was that like for you? Yes. And honoring that and respecting that every experience is different. I, I feel this too, just so much to the core because the the unnerving, I'm not a parent myself, but some of my closest friends, my sister even, the more I dive in and, and into our childhood, the more Al's, my sister, the more she's like, oh, I don't know about this, Amanda. I don't know how I would feel if my eldest started doing this and trying to dig back into her upbringing and whatever. And I was like, you know what? That's actually information. You know, that's that's very much the honoring of your own experience in the process and acknowledging that 
you're doing your very best as you can. No one gets out unscathed. Mm. And really, I almost hope that your eldest does the healing work required so that she becomes the best, most healthy, holistically sound person that she can be. Mm. Yeah, what a gift that is, right? That that's really what we would hope for with our children. I had a I had a very close friend who told me something. He said, you know, one of the greatest tragedies in my life is that my son stopped talking to me as an adult. And then he said this, he said, but you know, I look at my son and I realize he's a strong man. He's a good man. He's a responsible man. And he's doing the best that he can. And I think, God, I'm so proud of him, even in this, to do what he needs. I thought, oh, isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. The compassion that that invites, I think, just for the greater good is so profound. Because I know that in my own journey, the more that I dig in, the more that I heal, the more compassion I have for myself, for my parents, for Mm. everyone involved in my own upbringing, for everyone that I encounter who might be having a bad day. You know, like we're all showing up with different lived experiences. And I I love Mm. that that dad was able to see his son through a lens of compassion and just say, I see you, I honor you. Mm. And I honor this distance between the two of us because you are doing you. Yeah, it's a real gift. Mm. Um, And I think that, that the culture at large Probably do well, I think, in general, to ask those questions. Mm. What is the reality that you were called, that you were summoned into existence to bear out in this world? How can I listen to you? You know, I think of the Nez Perce tribe here in the Pacific Northwest that at a certain point in time, boys and girls on the threshold of coming into adulthood were sent uh, into a bit of a walkabout. They were sent, they had one goal, kind of a vision quest. But that goal was to come back with the message that they were chosen to bear back to the tribe. Mm. The tribe had a concept that every one of us had a message for our good if we would just listen. Mm-hmm. And your responsibility is to go and listen. And our responsibility is to listen to you. And I think that's such a beautiful understanding of the world. What is it that you were born to say? How can I hear? You know, I think I think the Abrahamic faiths, they've talked a lot about the Messiah. And of course, Judaism has an emphasis on this idea of the chosen one, the holy one and the Messiah. Of course, Eastern faiths often have gurus, you know, who are are really wonderful avatars of the divine. But I think it'd be interesting to consider, what if every one of us was the Messiah? Or rather yet, what would it be like if we listened to each one of us like we were the Messiah or the guru? Quite frankly, I think we'd have to weed through a lot of bullshit because a lot of what comes out of our mouth is total irrelevant, inane bullshit. Mm-hmm. We get so caught up in all the, the melodramas and the stories and the soap operas, uh, the bullshit, the elephant shit, the chicken shit, all of it. Mm-hmm. But if we listened, I have a feeling we'd hear something gold. Yeah. Oh. Rainier, these are the kinds of conversations I could have 
all day, every day. And I appreciate you so, so much. I have my three safe haven style questions, just honoring your time here. So I'm going to throw them at you. You ready? I'm ready. What are you most proud of? Hmm. My children. Um, they're beautiful. They're strong. They're anti-fragile. They're challengers. They're defiant. I'm very proud of them. Mm. What would you want to be known for? That I loved a woman well. Mm. Yeah. I don't just mean any woman. <laughs> I mean Christy, who I've often talked about as the avatar of the sacred feminine to me and my partner for the last 11 years, mother of my children, who I've so often failed to love well, who as an avatar and extension of my own self, I've often neglected, not chosen, and yet has still in this miraculous give of grace continued to choose me. And so if I could say that I was known for one thing at the end of life, it would be that I learned to love her well. That is so beautiful. And just as a side note, typically I don't respond to these questions, but just having connected with you through the conversation that you had on the Mark Groves podcast and knowing a little bit about that backstory. And thank you so much for sharing that story so vulnerably, because I think that like, even as your son said to second what your son had said, you have the ability to articulate a thought that runs so deeply within you that as a listener, you can feel. As someone in your presence, you can feel. And it's it's really powerful. And so I remember listening and feeling so much of your experience while driving. I was driving through the mountains. And just, yeah, like having so many questions, but also feeling like I already had all the answers at the same time. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Wow. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you so much for that. And for anyone listening oh. to this part, like, please just dive into that or like explore. Obviously, we're going to get all of your details here oh. about even your own podcast. But yeah, it's thank you for the work that you're doing. Wow. Okay. My last one. If you had a message for everyone listening, what would it be? Mm, let me sit with that. You know, last night I, um, I was made aware that a man who I've worked with in the past, a man who was in a group that I participated in, had taken his own life in a moment of despair. And I think there are so many of us who are backed against the wall, who are in that place of hopelessness. We look out at the world and we say, what is happening? It doesn't make sense. It's a world turned upside down. I think I recently shared it and I probably mean it more than ever in the light of that news. But I think all of us have experienced something like that where we've been let down and left out, left behind, kicked around, hurt, battered, find ourselves in a place of despair from time to time. But I do think my favorite stories, my favorite people, the ones who I, I listen to, not just with a smile, but with a tear in my eye, are the ones who kept going, the ones who doubled down, the ones who went to the mats, the ones who said, at all costs, I will take the mountain. 
And so I would say that just keep going, keep going. The horizon may look far away, yet it is still there. It is still dawning. Keep going. Mm-hmm. Oof. You are fantastic. I appreciate you. Like I've said a couple of times now, Rainier, thank you so much for being here. Before you leave us, I would love for you to just share some, sprinkle some details here for us. Where can we find your book? When's your next one coming out? You know, the salt bay when he like just sprinkles all of his salt on his steak. (laughs) (laughs) Sprinkle them all for us. Where can we find you? (laughs) Yeah, you can find me on Rainier Wild on Instagram that has most of the relevant details. You can also find me um, over on TikTok mm. these days. What what in the world yeah. is happening? The Rainier <laughs> Wild on TikTok. Um, sign up for my newsletter. You can find all the relevant details there. I always try and send those out. And you can check me out together with my partner on our own podcast called Love Like Hell, where we investigate the mysteries of love. And we use our story as really a jumping off point for anyone who has loved and lost loved and hoped again. Mm. Uh, and so that's that's a really fun thing. Mm. Last thing I will say, only just because that, again, hits very deeply, is in life, there's a couple of things that you've said here, even in sharing your own journey between, you know, stepping into new roles, you know, releasing the old, embracing the new, such, is something that has just hit me so profoundly over the last two weeks, big time, is allowing yourself to release shame. Societal expectation and the shame that we accept or absorb by exploring or like you've said, to love again or to hope again, to love again with hope, whatever you you know construct. I think how important it is to embrace the natural loving curiosity to release the shame so that you can fully embody the values in order to move forward energetically, physically, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, sexually, all of it. But how important the releasing of shame in other people's perspectives, opinions, and expectations is in order to be so truly centered in your own that you are carrying your best self into the exploration of the next step. It's so true. I love that you said that. And I've, I've got to be honest, you know, as someone who has lived with regrets in life, who has had enough demons to have thrown a few festivals in his honor, you know, I, I think that one of the realities is you live with shame. You live with and you learn to to walk through it to allow it to do its work, to have its medicine in your life, which is to invite you either into a place of change or a place of deep um, security. When you walk into the room, that you would hold your head high, that your shoulders would be thrown back, and that you would know that you are at home in your own company. Mm. And I think that is so damned important. There is a whole world out there sometimes, it seems like, wants to drag you back into a place of shame, that wants to bring you down and say, who the hell do you think you are? Mm -hmm. And I think you have to remember that thing that we talked about a few moments ago, what is my message? What is the thing that I was called into the world to speak? Can I do it? Even if it's a still small voice, even if it's a a cold and broken hallelujah, can I still speak that message? Can I still raise the red flag and resist shame? Yeah. Mm. So good, my friend. Thank you for being a guest on The Safe Haven. Thank you for having me. That was really wonderful. 
Rainier, thank you so much for being a guest on The Safe Haven. It was such a pleasure speaking with you for this conversation and our pre and post recording chats meant so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. To everyone listening, I recognize the privilege that comes with this platform and I'm committed to creating a brave and inclusive space with intention. If this episode has hit you right in the heart or inspired you in any way, please screenshot the screen while you're listening, send it to your friends and share it in your Instagram stories. Please be sure to tag us at the safe haven podcast so we can personally thank you for it. If you're able to write a review or leave a juicy five-star rating on Apple podcasts, that really helps this podcast grow. Sending you my love and I will talk to you next week.